Dear brother, you asked what is the difference between magic and theurgy. That is a tricky question to answer, as the word magic has meant and continues to mean many things to many people, as does the word theurgy. Indeed, they have been the subject of a great deal of debate over the centuries, and there is, as yet, no consensus as to their meaning. The subject of magic has been a matter of uncertainty since classical times. What is known is that magic is generally accepted as being derived from the Greek magia, a word the Greeks borrowed from the Persian magu or magi, which was the title of the sacerdotal caste of ancient Persia and Medea, who were followers of the prophet Zoroaster and priests of the god Ahura Mazda. The word magi signifies those who are wise, not only in the ways of the world, but also in the ways of God. And because of their wisdom, the Magi commanded great respect throughout the ancient world. So much so, Plato felt comfortable using the Magi as exemplars of the highest virtue when discussing statementship in his book Alcibiades I, where he describes how a royal prince of ancient Persia, upon reaching the age of 14 years, was put in the care of four carefully selected schoolmasters known as Magians. These masters were, and I quote, reputed to be the best among the Persians of a certain age, one of them being the wisest, another the most just, the third the most temperate, and the fourth the most valiant. The first instructs him in the Magianism of Zoroaster, which is the worship of the gods, and teaches him also the duties of his royal office. Thus Plato held the Magi in the highest esteem. And furthermore, informs us that the work of a magus or magician is the worship of the gods, by which I mean theurgy. With the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century, the classical world came to an end, and the Dark Ages began in Western Europe, out of which emerged the medieval era, spanning the best part of a thousand years, during which time magic generally became known under three main headings, natural magic, Goetia and Theurgy. Natural magic is concerned with the hidden workings of nature, its properties, powers, qualities, substances and virtues. It was held to be the noblest part of the physical sciences, and as such was not forbidden by faith, and therefore not legislated against. For many students of the magical art, it was the consummation of natural philosophy the study of alchemy, medicine and astrology and the manipulation of nature's finer forces were considered to be the proper domain of natural magic. One of its greatest exponents was Paracelsus, a renowned alchemist and healer of the 16th century, who became famous for his doctrine of signatures, in which he proposed that natural objects suggest by their external appearance the complaints for which they were cures. Thus, some plants may be seen as representing parts of the body, whilst others suggest diseases for which they may be used as remedies. A signature, therefore, was any distinctive feature or quality that indicated a connection between remedy and malady. You know, there is a fundamental distinction between the field of natural magic and those of Goetia and Theurgy. Natural magic was understood to be the application of true and natural causes to produce rare and unusual effects, by means that were considered at the time to be neither superstitious nor diabolical. 
It was a discipline of inquiring into the workings of nature and did not involve engaging with spirits or gods. On the other hand, Goetia in particular, and to a lesser degree Theurgy, were seen as disciplines that engage with spirits, gods, and a vast hierarchy of other supernatural beings. To the ancient Greeks, what we in our time might generally understand by the term sorcerer, witch, and witchcraft, were known by the names Goes or Goetis, from which the term Goetia and Goetic are derived. Indeed, from the earliest times, the terms Goetia was used in a sinister and disreputable sense, being invariably linked with magical rituals devised to control and manipulate people or spirits for questionable reasons, often to the detriment of others. Today, Goetia is usually associated with the 17th-century grimoire Lemegeton Clavicula Solemni, otherwise known as the Lesser Key of Solomon, around which a vast amount of fanciful myth and legend has accumulated. Indeed, Goetia has long been accepted as being synonymous with black magic. In historical terms, Goes were often seen as a threat to social order, and there were many occasions when the law against them was vigorously enforced, not only during the more recent events in our cultural history, but also in the distant past. For instance, almost from its beginning, the Roman Empire introduced laws against the practice of sorcery and witchcraft. The earliest Roman code of law, the Twelve Tablets, introduced in the mid-5th century BC, so named because they were publicly displayed in the Forum on Twelve Tablets of Bronze, forbade people from using magic to arm others, the punishment for such a crime being severe. In the 1st century BC, the patrician Felix Lucius Cornelius Sulla reformed these laws, part of which the Lex Cornelia Sicarii et Beneficis, otherwise known as the Cornelian Law concerning assassins and poisoners, included the following statement with regards to magic, and I quote, Persons who celebrate or cause to be celebrated impious or nocturnal rites, so as to enchant, bewitch, or bind anyone, shall be crucified or thrown to wild beasts. Persons who are addicted to the art of magic shall suffer extreme punishment, that is to say they shall be thrown to wild beasts or crucified. Magicians themselves shall be burnt alive. No one shall be permitted to have books on the art of magic in his possession and when they are found with anyone, they shall be publicly burnt. And those who have them, after being deprived of their property, if they are of superior rank, shall be deported to an island, and if they are of inferior station, shall be put to death. For not only is the practice of this art prohibited, but also the knowledge of the same. End quote. Clearly, the ancient world was no bed of spiritual roses. For society then just like today, had its share of unscrupulous people who were prepared to use both natural and supernatural force to take advantage of or to intimidate their neighbours. However, in Plato or Sulla's time, it would have been unlikely that a sorcerer or witch would have been mistaken for being a member of the Magi, because whether they were from Persia, ancient Egypt, Greece or Rome, the Magi were the elite of their culture. They were extremely learned, not only in the spiritual sciences, 
such as theology and psychology, but in the known empirical sciences, including astronomy, mathematics, metallurgy, philosophy, medicine, and physiology, and as such were highly respected. As Plato so eloquently put it, the work of the Magi was the worship of the gods, work that is formerly known as theurgy. The word theurgy is derived from the Greek words theos for God and ergos for work, from which is formed the words theorgia, which means works of God. These divine workings were the sacramental rites or mysteries that were central to the spiritual life of the ancient world. One of the most well-known exponents of theurgy was Iamblichus, who was born in Syria in the middle of the 3rd century. He was a pupil of Porphyry and the author of several books, most of which are now lost. Fortunately, one book, entitled The Mysteries, survived. It is an account of a lengthy correspondence about theurgy between Iamblichus and Abamon, an Egyptian high priest, concerning ancient theurgic principles and dynamics. Over the course of time, the ancient rites of theurgy were absorbed into the sacramental system of the Church and have since fallen into disuse, no longer valued either by the Church or the State. Indeed, apart from academics and those living on the fringes of modern civilization, we have barely any knowledge of the sacred rites of spiritual regeneration that was so important to the ancient world. This is hardly surprising as the modern secular world views the spiritual dimension of life as a potpourri of primitive beliefs, practices and superstitions, promoted by the unscrupulous with the intention of fleecing the naive and the incredulous, or fostered by the misguided and the irrational as a delusory mystical science that rests more on hopes, dreams and misconceptions than on any objective truth or observation. Even the majority of those who are knowledgeable perceive theurgy and goetia to be by and large one and the same thing, which is a potentially hazardous perception in that the objectives and dynamics are both, on their own terms, diametrically opposed. Alephus Levi writes of goetic magic, and I quote, This torrent of universal life, it is in this which brings to our evocations and to the conjurations of our goetic magic, such swarms of larvae and phantoms. Therein are preserved all the fantastic and fortuitous assemblages of forms which people are nightmares with such abominable monstrosities. End quote. Herein we may perceive the distinction between goetia and theurgy, for in goetia the magician seeks to control the forces of nature and the spirits that abound in creation to take heaven by storm, as it were, whereas the theurgist seeks purification, liberation, and the salvation of the soul, following a path of thy will be done, as opposed to my will be done. This is best summed up by Iamblichus himself, who wrote, and I quote, From the beginning, it is necessary to divide ecstasy into two species. One is turned towards the inferior, filled with foolishness, and delirium, but the other imparts goods more honourable than human wisdom. The former is unstable, the latter unchangeable. The first is counter to nature, the latter is beyond nature. The former makes the soul descend, the latter raises it up, 
and while the former entirely separates the soul from participation in the divine, the latter connects the soul with the divine. End quote. From the foregoing, it becomes obvious that describing what is meant by magic is at best a little tricky. Magic meaning different things to different people at different times. But please do note, if there is a common theme that runs throughout the history of magic, it is control. In all systems of magic throughout history, people have sought to control both their material and spiritual environment and all things within it through the use of supernatural powers. In material terms, magic is seen in today's world as a delusory pseudoscience. But in spiritual terms, it is the inevitable technology that emerges from theology, a technology which is at best ethically neutral. Thus, there is a common perception of magic and there is theurgy. Broadly speaking, natural magic was traditionally concerned with exploring the natural world and over the course of time has naturally evolved into the sciences. But there are systems of magic that fall either under the banner of divine workings or under the banner of the diabolical and many and varied are the views concerning them. This is very clear in Kabbalah where the Western interpretation of Kabbalah is as a magical system. However, for two exponents of Kabbalah, the divine workings are not magic, and the Kabbalist is neither a magician nor seeks to become a magician. It may be difficult for an impartial observer to grasp the significance of this point, particularly in the light of popular opinion, which views Kabbalah and Kabbalists in terms of popular fiction and the imaginings of the media, but it may become clear if one understands that practical Kabbalah is concerned only with the divine names of God as derived from the scriptures and their mysterious workings, as unfolded in the Kabbalistic processes which are essentially meditative. The divine names are intimately connected with the Sephirotic world and its emanation. Thus to engage with the divine names is to actively engage with the spiritual world in a sacred process geared to the regeneration of the soul, and not to its elevation, aggrandizement, or for its intellectual curiosity. From the time of the Sephiyyad Zira, and probably before, a complex and sophisticated system evolved concerning the application and use of the divine names. For the Kabbalists, this system constitutes the essence of practical Kabbalah. However, in the late Middle Ages, this system passed into the realms of ceremonial magic, from which a degraded form of practical Kabbalah emerged, and many scholars and magicians have never really seen the two as being separate entities. Concerning this, A. E. Waite writes, and I quote, The white and black magic of the Middle Ages constitutes a kind of spurious practical Kabbalah, which represents Jewish esoteric doctrine debased to the purpose of the sorcerer, and it is necessary that we should estimate it at its true worth, because it has been a subject of misconception not only among uninstructed persons, but even professed expositors. A study of Zoharistic writings, their developments and commentaries, will show the ends proposed by the speculative Kabbalah are very different from evocations of spirits, the raising of ghosts, discovery of concealed treasures, the bewitchments and other memories of ceremonial magic. The Kabbalah does, however, 
countenance, as we have seen, the doctrine of a power resident in divine names, and it is in fact one of the burdens of its inheritance. End quote. Which is an interesting observation by Arthur Edward Waite, and a good place to pause this talk until another time. Thank you.